Well, good morning, church, those who are joining us here and that widely dispersed community who are joining us online. I'd like to start this morning with a dad joke. Is that okay? You know what a dad joke is? There's, there's probably two key criteria that make it a dad joke. The first is that he's told it many times before and he's just forgotten in his dotage and oncoming senility. The, the second is it's really not that funny but people love him because he's dad, and so they laugh anyway. So I'm just cueing you about that. Uh, there's a man who has an opportunity to talk to God. In the course of the conversation, he questions him. The first question is this. So God, a billion years, what's that like? And God responds, for me, it's like an instant, a second. And the man goes on and says, God, a a billion dollars. What, what is that like? And God says, a billion dollars for me, like a penny. The man's feeling just a little bit clever. And he says, God, could I have one of those pennies? And God says, of course you can. Just give me a second. Uh-huh. I warned you. Bad joke, right? Uh, not that funny, but... But a suitable introduction for today's topic. Just a reminder that we started this series last weekend where we're addressing some of the common things that are attributed to God or sometimes attributed to God's Word. We think that they're in Scripture, and yet when we go looking for them, we can't quite find them. And it's important maybe to, to pause and look at some of these things and the assumptions underneath them. Because of our understanding of who God is, of his character and his action in history, if, it, if it's off a bit, that can become a major stumbling block in our ability to know him and worship him and trust him. And it can really get in the way of the, the message that the church is trying to give to the world. So here's the phrase we're going to look at this weekend. You've heard it already. Money is the root of all evil. How many of you have heard that before? Money is the root of all evil. Now here's a trick question. How many of you think that phrase is in the Bible? It kind of is, right? Kevin just kind of read it for us. It's, it's kind of in there. It's in a collection of letters that, that Paul wrote to his young friend Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. But here's what it actually says in verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of of evil. Not quite the same thing, is it? But whether it's this passage or other passages like it, it's important whenever we read the Bible to be careful not to recklessly pull a verse out and use it for purposes that might distort the way that it fits in to the overall narrative. Scripture, the Word of God, has a narrative an overarching story, a bigger conversation. And at different moments in that conversation, God is speaking to people, sometimes in particular circumstances, at at particular times, often addressing specific situations. And when we read Scripture, one of the important lessons is to remember the conversation that God is having. What were the issues of the day? 
What is it that God's people were wrestling with? And so if you just pull a phrase out, and if you misquote it, money is the root of all evil, you can wind up with what in the end becomes kind of a dangerous misapplication of God's word. If you were to take that phrase alone, money is the root of all evil, it sounds pretty straightforward. In which case, we as citizens of a wealthy part of a wealthy nation, among the very top 5% of the most affluent people in the world, and I don't care whether your household income is $20,000 or $200,000, that still places you in the very upper echelon of wage earners in the world. And if we were to take this just on, on, on the straightforward misquotation of the word, then we would be surrounded in and bathed in evil. We might conclude that money is a bad thing, and so we ought to avoid it and jettison it and stay away from it, warning bells going off all over the place. And to be fair, the Bible actually has a lot to say about money and material possessions. Outside of salvation itself, it it probably is the topic that gets most attention from Jesus in Jesus' own teaching. Obviously, he vectors in on the love of God and the love of God as it's reflected in the love of our neighbors. But when it comes to practical earthy wisdom, this is the subject that required more uh, application and reapplication than any other. And if we take this misquoted phrase, money is the root of all evil, if we take it out of context and add it to some of the other admonitions that we find in Scripture, it's easy to jump to the conclusion that it's better to be poor than it is to be sufficient, that that a life of poverty is somehow more spiritual than a life of wealth. For instance, you hear Jesus talking, he's teaching in the Gospels, And he says, very graphic image, he says, you know, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to make their way into the kingdom of God. And we hear the admonition, we can can say, well, being rich or having the ability to generate wealth, it must be a bad thing, makes it impossible to enter heaven. What about that time in in Jesus' life, when he encounters a rich, young ruler, comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to, it, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments? Observe the commandments. And Jesus said, or the, the young ruler says, I've done all these things. I mean, from the time I was a young man, I've kept the commandments. And, and then Jesus responds, oh, this, this one thing more, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And we hear it and we think, oh my gosh, I mean, does that mean that having money or possessions, the cars that we drove here this morning, the homes to which we'll return this afternoon, that that these things are a spiritual death trap, that if you have too much, that automatically you're in trouble with God. Throughout church history, there have been saints and church leaders, not many of them, mind you, but But some of the high-profile ones, like St. Francis and Mother Teresa, who made a virtue out of a life of scarcity. They took vows of poverty, and, and we look up to them and their example. And we look around our world, don't we, at the incredible disparity between rich and poor. 
And we become very uncomfortable, uneasy with the idea of riches and possessions. But here's the truth. At least I think it's a truth. And it's one of the truths that I want to put in front of you at the beginning of the message this morning. Money is morally neutral. Money is morally neutral. Money, or at least you know, the, the resources upon which money obtains its value, gold, the gold standard, or, or, or whatever the, the material wealth of a nation is that, that underpins the, the value of its currency. Money is part of God's creation. It's part of God's good creation. It is a blessing. Part of the original blessing that God gives to his people is what? I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'm going to give you descendants. Through your descendants, you'll be a blessing to the world. And I'm going to give you land. How much wealth in your life is actually tied up in the land that you own or pretend to own? The bank owns most of it. but yeah. The notion that money is evil is based on the way that it can sometimes distort our hearts, and disrupt our thinking in ways that are dangerous. For example, how many of you have ever resented somebody who is wealthier than you? A lot wealthier than you. Every time we have an election in this country, that gets trotted out, doesn't it? Somehow that, that the uber-rich are, are a problem for the nation. And maybe they are. I'm not trying to embrace the political discussion here, but have you resented somebody because they were wealthier than you? But they don't work as hard. I mean, why does somebody who swings a bat make 10,000 times as much as somebody who saves a life in a hospital? We don't maybe have the answer to that. How many of you have ever had a judgmental thought about somebody who drives a really, really nice car? Or wears just... Fancy, amazing clothes. How many of you, like me, feel like you can't even shop at a place like Sherway Gardens anymore? I don't know if you have clothes that are good enough to be found in the aisles of those stores. How many of you drive through the neighborhoods of the GTA and look at some of those houses and, and you have thoughts about the people who live there? How many of you have held somebody up in contempt because of what they have? Or how about this? Maybe it's closer to home. How many of you have ever walked out into the church parking lot after the service and seen a really high-end vehicle parked in the parking lot and said, and thought, you know, why, why do they need a car like that? They, they could have saved their money and used their money to help the poor or to assist missionaries around the world. Don't they know that there are great needs? You had thoughts like that? Of course, you're not going to admit that because you're on camera, right? It'll be caught for all time. It'll be on YouTube. If we misunderstand the way that God thinks about money and possessions, we fall into a trap, and part of the trap is resenting people who have more of it than we do. And then we spiritually justify the feelings that we have. Or worse, we feel morally and spiritually like we have the high ground. We're superior to they are, to who they are. And without really taking the time to understand what God thinks about money or possessions, we go to some really extreme places. In fact, there are two extremes two poles where the church has drifted over time. The first is the gospel of poverty. 
that in order to be spiritually rich, you must be physically poor. And that has at various times in history been taught. And as a result of that teaching, uh, followers of Christ, however misintentioned, have looted and pillaged the estates of the wealthy, have set them aflame, thinking that that is the road to spiritual health. But on the other hand, there is this thing which is probably more typical of the 20th century, the the prosperity gospel. And it gets promoted widely, and you can see why. Prosperity gospel teaches that the good life, God wants us to have the good life, right? That's what it means. God bless you. God give you good things. That the good life is all wrapped up in possessions, and God wants you to be happy. And so if you pray properly, and if you follow well, He'll give you more of that that affluence is a sign of the blessing of God and that God wants to bless His people with wealth and physical things. So you'll find if you drive through the states, uh, this is where I've noticed it particularly, that interstate billboards are actually quite pronounced in the way that they will depict pastors and leaders holding up hands with enormous gold and diamond studded rings with, with elaborate mansions in the background and, and fancy cars parked in the parking lot. Why? Because that's God's blessing. That's the prosperity gospel. Now you realize that, that either extreme, for the most part, extremes are always dangerous, but either extreme here is dangerous. The prosperity gospel, I mean, let's be honest, isn't that just greed dressed up in the veneer of religion? The poverty gospel can be dangerous too because there is nothing spiritual about poverty. The Bible is quite clear that God carries a burden for those who are poor because poverty is not the preferred condition of human beings. There's no one that becomes better off by languishing in poverty. How much of the church's effort over history has been trying to eradicate it, trying to lift people out of it? In a book called The Spirit of Disciplines, the author wrestles with this dynamic, devotes a whole chapter to it, and he writes, the idealization of poverty is one of the most dangerous illusions that Christians have had in the world. So let's come back to that, to that statement about money being morally neutral. Wealth is just part of created reality. And God looked at the world, and what is it He said about the world that He made? It's good. It's good. Yeah, he said it every day. He said it over everything that He made. It's good, it's good, it's good. But just like human beings, us human beings without redemption, the wealth of this world, this fallen world, has a tendency to drift towards evil. And, and this normal tendency is what needs to be addressed, needs to be removed, needs to be purified. And it happens through submission. It happens through that, that, that honoring of God in the hard places of our lives. Because while wealth may not be the problem, its owners are. Riches are not holy, and riches are not evil. They're creations of God to be used. 
money can be a valuable resource. I mean, every Sunday, one of our service hosts stands there bravely and says, it's time to give. Money is a valuable resource. The source of blessing, one of the sources of blessing in the world. We use it to provide clothing and food, to care for the needy, to heal the sick, to help those who are seeking Jesus find him. And the money that we can generate together gets used to make our world and our communities better and healthier places. I actually think the the ability to generate wealth for God's purposes is a spiritual gift. You know, there there are lots more spiritual gifts than just the ones that are written in the Bible. Those are illustrative lists, not comprehensive lists. There are people, and there are people here at this church, who have the ability to generate wealth And alongside that, God has gifted them with the the spirit of generosity. And they have managed to unleash just a huge number of resources for kingdom work. There are people for whom if they tithe toward the budget of their local church, would raise the whole budget on their own. And so they're quietly behind the scenes, funding the work of the kingdom in all kinds of places. The ability to generate wealth for good purposes can be one of God's great gifts. Let's go back to that letter, 1 Timothy 6. If you have your Bibles or your devices, let me invite you to open them up. 1 Timothy 6. Let's see what Paul actually wrote to his young apprentice, Timothy, and get a more complete picture of what God might be trying to say to us. Uh, Kevin read it really well, so I'm I'm just going to refresh it in your memory. 1 Timothy 6. Godliness without contentment is great gain. And then just a a really helpful remembrance. We brought nothing into the world. None of you arrived with a wallet in your back pocket because there were no pockets. You brought nothing into it. You take nothing out of it. Uh, Though I've been at funerals where they try and stuff as much as they can into the casket. You, You still, you take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing... The necessary things in life. There's contentment in that. But those who want to get rich, we're going to come back to that specific language, those who want to get rich, fall into temptation. It's a trap, the Scripture says. And some people, eager for money, have wandered far from the faith. See, Paul's issuing a bunch of warnings to Timothy Not about money, but how money can get a grip on the lives of people. Those who want to get rich, they fall into a temptation. It's a trap. He says, some people eager for money wander far from their faith. And it says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money, the love of money. Not all evil, but all kinds of evil. Of different evil. And we're going to come back to that expression. Jesus gives a very similar warning in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 12. He says, Watch out. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, because life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions. What does Jesus mean by that? All kinds of greed? Well, both Jesus and Paul, who is writing to Timothy, uh, they warn people about greed because greed is like a trap. And it's, it's hard sometimes to see ourselves falling into the trap. And you don't have to be rich to fall into the trap. 
remember a mentor long ago said there's two ways to get people obsessed with money. One is to give them too much of it. The other is not to give them enough. Either way, your thoughts are always revolved around money. Paul says, again, that expression, those who want to get rich fall into the temptation, into the trap. You don't have to be rich. Sometimes it's just the obsession with getting rich. You can be poor. And all you think about is getting more. That's why lotteries prey on those who are often the most vulnerable in society. You don't need to have a fortune to be in love in unhealthy ways with money. Anyone, with a lot or a little, they can be eager and can love money and get controlled by greed. And anyone can get consumed by thoughts around money, how they're going to spend it, how they're going to get more of it, how they should save it, how they should use it, how much more they wish they had. You can have a little amount, you can have a lot of it, and you can still fall into a trap. And this, this is how the trap works. We almost never see ourselves in it. Money is a comparison game for us. We look at who has more and who has less. We look at how other people spend and we're quick to pass judgment. But we never think of ourselves or we don't want to think of ourselves as the ones being greedy. I'm the one wasting resources. I'm the one being selfish. The reason why that's the case, keep your thumb in 1 Timothy 6. Let me give you a verse. This is in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. This is one you should underline. You're not going to want to underline it, but you should. Jeremiah 17, 9. Our hearts are deceitful above all things. We're good at lying to ourselves. Our hearts are deceitful above all things. Instead of comparing what I have to the rest of the world that doesn't have nearly as much, I tend to compare what I have only with the people who have so much more than me. That's just the way it works. And it's why it's so hard for me to see greed at work in my own life. I only ever compare myself to people who have more. There's a great book on this, by the way, if you're looking for a quick read. It's not a big book. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And this is what he says. He says, money can be a surface idol, a surface, on the surface idol, that serves to satisfy more foundational impulses. He goes on, he says, some people want lots of money as a way of controlling their world and their life. Some people usually don't spend much money. They live very modestly. They keep it all safely saved and invested. And that way they can feel completely secure in the world. They don't need anyone. They're safe on their own. He goes on, he says, others want money as a way of accessing social circles, making themselves feel beautiful and attractive. They spend their money on themselves and others in lavish ways. Other people, Keller goes on, want money because it gives them power over others. But in every case, money functions as an idol. And yet, because of the various deeper idols underneath it, it can result in very different patterns behavior. I think really this might be what Jesus and Paul are getting at when he says, watch out for all different kinds of greed. Because money, money is just a thing, like ping pong or granola bars. It's just a thing. But underneath the iceberg, under the surface, are those deeper longings, those deeper idols, those deeper motivations. And so Paul says it is the root of all kinds of evils. 
hidden beneath the surface. It's the stuff we don't think about most of the time. So in other words, someone who saves every penny, never spends a cent, but does it so that they can feel absolutely secure, protected, controlled of their life, fenced off from the world, might in fact be no less selfish than someone who spends carelessly and recklessly on themselves in order to look attractive to others. I'll give you an example. Uh, located in the middle of one of the most beautiful, beautiful and expensive neighborhoods in downtown L.A., is the John Paul Getty Museum. The John Paul Getty Museum is named after John Paul Getty. <laughs> That's just a consciousness check is all that was. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, John Paul Getty was a multi-billionaire. He was considered to be the richest living American at the time when he lived. And despite his incredible, vast, enormous wealth, he was also known to be infamously, notoriously frugal. For example, in his mansions, he always installed a payphone so that anyone who needed to make a call would have to pay for it themselves. His friends talked about a time when he was out with a group of those friends and he took them to a show in London. He had them walk around the block for 10 minutes so the ticket price could drop to half price after 5 p.m. Again, he's a multi-billionaire. And recently, there was a movie made about the life of John Paul Getty. In fact, it starred one of the great Canadian actors, Christopher, Blummer, uh, Christopher Plummer. And it, it's based on a true story about when his grandson was kidnapped and he was absolutely unwilling to budge on the ransom. Some of you are nodding. You've seen it or you've, at least you've heard of it. John Paul Getty, one of the richest people in the world who ever lived, incredibly frugal with his own resources, absolutely obsessed and ruled by money. You don't have to be rich to be greedy. And you don't have to be poor to be frugal. But it's a trap. And anyone can be controlled by the love of money. That's just kind of how this thing works. It's a trap. And so we watch out for it in our lives. And the way to break free from the trap is not by vilifying money. Well, that might seem to be an easy solution. The way to break free from the trap is by examining our hearts. It's by that, that word that, that keeps coming back to us in Scripture, that, that word that's right there at the height of, of Paul's letter when he writes to Rome, the, the great center of the world. He says, you need to be transformed through mind renewal. We need something going on inside of us, a transformation of the mind and the heart by the grace of God. We have to deal with what's underneath the surface to look at the deeper idols in our lives at a kind of at a heart level. Idols like control, the need to be in control and security and acceptance. What am I willing to pay in order to feel accepted by my peers? And whatever it is, a job, a, a relationship, something that you own, an RRSP, these things, they, they become distorting influences when they assume a place of primacy in our lives. 
And the way to break free is for God to, to assume that place where the other things had previously located themselves. To make sure that, that God is our ultimate hope for security. That God is our ultimate hope for acceptance. That the acknowledgement that God is control is what allows us to crest our way through the world when it's not in our control. And when we understand, in fact, that God gave us everything that he had to give when he sent Jesus, that he died to make us his own, then, then we're able to make him our own. And only then does money cease to become the currency of significance and security in our lives. Because I think that's what it is for most of us. It is the currency of security and significance. When you get it right, when you get God in the right place, that's when you actually are freed to become generous without, without feeling the weight of that. You can, you can bless others because you know what you've received. It's the, it's the thing that breaks the power of greed, because my security is not in my bank account, it's in God's love and acceptance, and my identity isn't found in my net worth or my portfolio. My identity is found in the fact that I'm a child of God and that my father is a king. What more could we possibly want? If, if in fact that's true, then faith of Jesus, it just changes the bottom line. It changes everything inside of us. It changes how we see the world outside of us. And when we get it, when we accept it, when we understand it, money and greed, these things lose the grip they have on us. They lose the power they had in our lives. And Jesus was right. He said, you, you can't serve two masters. If you serve money, it will consume you. You'll be consumed by greed and worry and anxiety. You're going to think about it all the time. It's what, it's what Paul really wants to steer Timothy away from. This trap, he called it. That's why he says to Timothy, you know, godliness with contentment? That's great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is realizing that somehow we made our way into the world with nothing, we'll leave the world with nothing, that everything in between is a gift from God. And if that's true, then really our job is just to steward everything that he gives to us for a time in the intervening years. Our job is to manage resources. We are resource managers in the kingdom of God. Not only does God give us what we have, but he also blesses us with the abilities and the skills and the experiences and talents to earn and acquire and accumulate resources. Wage earners for the kingdom of God. Contentment is recognizing that we come into the world with nothing, that everything we have is a gift from God, and while we are resource managing and accumulating wealth, we have the chance to be part of something that has eternal significance. Listen to what Paul goes on to say. We, we fast forward a little bit in 1 Timothy 6 into verse 17, if you want to follow along. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God 
who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. For in this way they will lay up for themselves treasures in heaven, a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I love that expression, the life that is truly life. This is really living. How does somebody get a hold of life like that? How do you get a life that is truly life? Here's what Paul says. You live a life that is truly life by placing your ultimate hope in God. You can live that life by finding your identity in the one who has loved and accepted you, your heavenly Father. You live that life by being a steward of the good gifts that God has entrusted to you. Because those things are not evil. Those resources are a way that God is trusting in you as the people that bear His image, as the people who bear the name of His Son, to use those things to reflect His grace and mercy into the world. That is the purpose of your life. And that, that is truly living. I invite you to bow your heads with me. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the privilege of gathering for worship, both here and online, both today and in the days ahead. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to touch and feel and see and celebrate all of the gifts that you have invested into the world and that you've poured into our lives. God, we're so grateful for these things, for the way that you have seeded generosity into our lives and in our world. We thank you most of all, God, for Christ himself, whose presence in the world is undoubtedly your greatest gift. God, as we worship together, May the reality of your presence, may it grip and hold us. It becomes so real to us that we get transformed from the inside out so that our greatest gain, our our greatest pleasure, our greatest joy is found in knowing you. Jesus, lead the way, we pray. Amen.